Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Bloomberg NEF columnist Nat Bullard has a wonderful phrase that I borrow all the time, and that is, CapEx is destiny. And basically what that means is that where you invest your capital in an economy and how much capital you invest in an economy is going to determine the number of jobs you have, the prosperity that you enjoy, the public services that you can afford to fund, that sort of thing. Well, I'm going to be talking to Ethan Zindler, who is the head of America's for Bloomberg EDF, and he's the lead author on a new report, Energy Transition Investment Trends 2022, Tracking Global Investment in the Low-Carbon Energy Transition. So welcome to the interview, Ethan. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. This is fascinating because uh, I've been reporting on the energy transition for quite a while now. And one of the things uh, I often talk about with guests is when the energy transition began to accelerate. So my sense of it is kind of 2017, 2018, you could feel the rumblings, right? You know, and, and CapEx increased you know, in the clean energy transition. And now it is, there's just a, a flood of capital and maybe not enough to get to net zero in the, you know, that we need, but nevertheless, capital into the clean energy transition industries and companies has increased significantly. Uh, is that a fair summation of the last five, six years? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I would, um, I, I would, I would, and maybe it's only because I've been at it for quite a while. I would say that we, we certainly saw plenty of progress in the five years even before that as well. And you look on a kind of percentage growth basis, growth basis, it was really strong. Um, but you're exactly right. I mean, we've been ticking along. Uh, this last year was about uh, three quarters of a trillion dollars in new capital that we tracked going into um, new energy technologies and what we call energy transition investment overall. So, you know, that was a record by far. Uh, and so clearly there's something well underway. Uh, even just purely anecdotally, um, you know, the other day I was at the uh, Clean Energy Ministerial in Pittsburgh, uh, where there was an event called the Global Clean Energy Action Forum that drew about 4,000 people. Uh, that same week, we had a climate week in New York. I don't know how many thousand people went to that. And that very same week, there was also the RE Plus conference out in Anaheim, California, which I was told was a total zoo with about 27,000 attendees. So just the sheer number of people now who are interested in this space is pretty remarkable uh, and growing quickly. Well, let's talk about a little bit of an addition, maybe, to your quarter of a, a trillion number. Uh, you also note that climate tech corporate finance, which w wasn't included in the in that number, uh, was 165 billion in 2021. Add them together, you're up over 900 billion dollars in capital. Why didn't you include the the climate tech uh, capex in your number? Oh, well, it's a good question. Um, well, what, well, to be clear, the first one, uh, which, is a th which is actually $755 billion in energy transition investment, probably is more akin to CapEx. That's money that's spent on building stuff 
like large-scale wind and solar projects. It actually also includes the sales of uh, electric vehicles, so getting EVs on the road, um, and other types of projects like new nuclear projects and things like that. So we're, we're literally talking about stuff. The $165 billion you just mentioned in climate tech uh, corporate finance is really money that goes into developing new technologies that aren't quite ready for deployment yet. So this is money that's raised over the stock markets, uh, the majority of it, but it's also venture capital and other, other funding uh, for techs that, uh, that are coming along uh, and that hopefully, fingers crossed, um, we will see deployed into the field you know, in the next five to 10 years. So we're talking about capital that went to build things. Uh, versus capital that went to companies to fund innovation, which in Correct. turn is what is, is driving much of the uh, much of the energy transition. Now, I want to run a little hypothesis uh, by you, and mm -hmm. uh, regular listeners will know uh, this is a bit of a hobby horse of mine. Uh, okay. But I I argue that over the last 20, 30 years, uh, we had climate policy driving the energy transition. There's no doubt about that. You know, we wouldn't have had solar panels uh, if it were not for Germany, that sort of thing. But that was priming the pump. And I think now for a while, we could argue about whether it's three years, five years, whatever, but for a while, the pump is primed and it's now running on, a, by, on, its, on its own. And climate policy now is not so much uh, as getting the energy transition geared up, getting those technologies that are at the bottom of the S-curve up to and past their inflection point and on to the, you know, for hockey stick growth, that sort of thing. Climate policy now, its primary role in my in my take is dictate the pace of the energy transition. So you you note later in the in the, you've got some energy uh, transition scenario or net zero transition uh, scenarios, and we need a lot more than this. We need trillions of dollars in capital every year, not just about a trillion. And so, what's your take on this? I my idea that that climate policy really is how fast we will go. But the energy transition itself is inevitable just because better tech, it's better. I would definitely agree that we're going in the right direction. And I think I would also agree, if I hear you correctly, that we're not moving fast enough to get there. Um, and so I think you're exactly right that, you know, the days where, uh, you know, solar and wind markets were entirely determined by, you know, whether there was a strong feed-in tariff or some other type of subsidy. I think we've moved past that. I mean, one of the things that our um, report shows that in about half the countries around the world in 2021, solar was the number one technology installed on a megawatt basis. There were over 110 countries in the world that installed at least a megawatt of solar last year. So this has become pretty ubiquitous around the world. So I think you're exactly right that this has become... Uh, that you know, there's a certain momentum that's there that's very much well underway for these uh, existing um, and quite viable technologies, uh, and and that's great. Um, again, I don't think it's happening fast enough, and that's where you really need to look at policy and to see where you can sort of step on the on the accelerator a little bit more to make this go even quicker. And then there's a second question though, which is also about the technologies which aren't yet viable, and that's the stuff we were just talking about a minute ago, the 165 billion of of climate tech investment, um, because the reality is these these the technologies that we're seeing are being deployed quickly, are really important, are decarbonizing, but on their own, and at least in our view, will not be sufficient ever to get us all the way to zero. And so when we're talking about um, uh, things like long duration storage or small modular nuclear reactors or perhaps, perhaps CCS or perhaps hydrogen, 
that kind of technology either needs to be developed or scaled in a way that hasn't happened yet. And so in that case, we would argue that there's still quite quite, quite a lot of room for policy support and, and increasingly seems to be more available, uh, including in the United States, uh, finally, thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act. Let's talk about where that capital is going. Uh, so you mentioned that a lot of money, a lot of solar installed in the in the last few years, and renewable energy uh, takes up probably, uh, I guess, close to half of that seven hundred and fifty-five billion dollars. I'm looking at your your chart, so my no, I don't have mm-hmm. the numbers attached to it. Sure. Uh, and then, of course, uh, electrified transport transportation. So it looks like the power sector and the transportation sector are leading the charge up the S curve and other sectors are maybe a little a little slower or maybe a lot slower uh, on their journey up the S curve. Uh, give us a sense of where this money is going, where the capital is going. So that's right. I mean, of the 755 that we um, tracked last year, about 366 of it, at least by our count, went to renewables. And number two seven, another two seventy three went to electrified transport. And there you go. That's like you say. That's about uh, got about six hundred or so. That seven fifty five. Uh, and then the rest um, went to, into things like electrified heat, nuclear, the area of sustainable materials, and then you know the other category, which is energy storage, CCS, and hydrogen. And even though we saw a record amount of batteries being deployed, it still represented a tiny sliver of the 755. Um, and so that's an area we certainly think is going to grow very, very quickly because um, the technology's gotten cheaper um, and there's more applications possible um, that's out there um, in coming years. Um, the EV segment is clearly also going to grow just because the numbers of EVs that we're seeing on the road is rising very, very quickly now as well. So, um, so you're right that those other areas um, and electrified heat is an area which I think we I think we, we can all agree is probably something that has to happen much faster if you want to decarbonize that segment of the economy um, as we look beyond just decarbonizing power and looking in towards and towards heat as an area that can be decarbonized as well. Now, I want to talk about electric transportation for a little bit, because uh, I'm fond of saying that in Canada, Canadians just don't understand how fast things are changing globally in in uh, in this space. And one of the areas that has done uh, is that it's basically been flipped on its head in the course of in the space of, you know, two to three years. And that's and that's automaking. I mean, uh, automakers are all in on electric now. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of billion of dollars committed to switching to the manufacture uh, of electric vehicles away from internal combustion engines, about $350 billion, excluding China, India, and the small manufacturers, you know, by 2026, another $100 billion or so by by 2030. And I I don't think those numbers are in here. Those are numbers that we've used, we've pulled from Mm -hmm. other reports. But, But it underscores the extent to which the auto sector is is fully committed to to electric and there's no going back yeah i mean it's pretty it's pretty amazing if you look at it uh you know and in fact you really kind of need to look at ev sales on a quarterly basis because the number is moving so quickly so you know one of the things that we did note in the fact book here is that uh 14% of all cars cars sold in the second quarter of 2022 um have a plug in them some are plug-in hybrid electric vehicles, some are pure battery electric vehicles, but that's one in seven cars sold around the world, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, and if you look at the penetration rates, you know, there's certain, there's certain, you know, certainly the kind of headline countries like Norway, where 
or you know the number the percentage of sales is you know well up over 80 percent now um, but they're not alone um, you know you see countries certainly clearing the 10 or 20 percent um, barrier uh, uh, and the us you know still below 10 percent in Canada as well but you know we think that that's going to rise um, really uh, pretty quickly and in fact we just um, not in this report but just the other day released a, a revised estimate for us uh, EV sales based on the components of the Inflation Reduction Act, which are uh, pretty supportive to EVs overall. Uh, we were pretty bullish about EV sales in the United States even before the legislation passed, um, but we've now boosted our um, our projected sales for EVs in the United States for 2030 to get up over 50%. I think 52% was the specific figure that we're now estimating. That's about 10% higher than what we were estimating before. So you know, you're going to get some good policy support um, out of the U.S., uh, which has not been a world leader so far in this area, um, but it's obviously an enormous auto market of whatever it is, 18, 19 million cars sold a year. Uh, and uh, and that's really going to boost um, the EV growth, we think, here. But already, to be clear, we went from 3 million sales to 6 million sales year on year from 2020 to 2021. So the market's already surging. Let's talk about regions, uh, because my take on the Inflation Reduction Act is that this is basically... The, the Biden administration's declaration of economic war on China. And I go back over and over again to the campaign literature, the campaign platform that Biden ran on in 2020. And he said very clearly, China has overtaken us in the clean energy economy. We are no longer number one, and we may not even be number two. But I, he pledged to make America number one by 2030. And the Inflation Reduction Act, along as along with other pots of money and policy and so on, is is the strategy to do it. And the reason uh, you can see why he would want to do it is contained in your report because last year China, all sorry Asia Pacific, had three hundred sixty eight billion dollars of capex, nearly half the total. Uh, Europe, Middle East, and Africa had two hundred thirty six billion dollars, and America's only had one hundred fifty billion. So if if Nat is right and CapEx is destiny, then that number uh, had to be doubled or tripled. Yeah. Is that a fair take uh, on this? Well, I mean, another way to look at it is just, you know, where is the manufacturing, um, where does it exist right now for the components that go into um, these projects? And if you if you look at that, you don't even really need to look at it very closely, but at least for the vast majority of, you know, the vast majority of, of uh, manufacturing takes place in China. Uh, and, and what's not in China is, is often in Vietnam or Taiwan, one of the other Southeast Asian countries. One of the charts that we've got in the fact book looks at this question of current production capacity by location. And really, I mean, you look across photovoltaics, you look across batteries and, and the battery metal refining area. And in just about every segment with the exception of one or two, uh, you know, well over 70, 75% of all production is taking place in China. So it is not a surprise that the IRA or the Inflation Reduction Act is specifically taking aim at trying to make the U.S. more competitive. Uh, it's a very interesting, I, I mean, I very much agree with your take that the legislation itself is, or the law itself is uh, is, 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 is really an act of economic development in many ways. Um, and it's a, it kicks off an interesting era in which, um, or, or, or a new turn, I would say, in which uh, we, we think about energy and climate policy from a very competitive 
point of view in terms of industrial policy. Uh, and we, we've seen other examples of this before, and let's be clear, some in Canada too, including domestic content rules and things like that. Um, but, uh, but this takes it kind of to a whole new level. Yeah, I, I would agree. And um, I've talked to actually some of your colleagues. Uh, 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 I can't remember his name right now, uh, Amofo. Uh, who is the head of uh, metals and mining uh, for for Bloomberg? Quasi, Quasi, Quasi. Quasi. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I'm sorry. Thank uh -huh. you very much for helping me out. Sure. So, so Quasi told me uh, because I I thought you know that Canada, if it was going to get into the into mining uh, critical minerals, but then get into the refining and processing side, which China controls almost like almost eighty percent of that global capacity, I thought maybe a decade. You know, maybe at the, the you know the latest 2030 would have some time to get. And he said, Oh no, three years. That's how long Canada has got to get in this game, because as you, you know, Vietnam, Indonesia, these countries have been do, have been in, have been pursuing this kind of investment a lot longer. They're further down the road, and and more likely to get a leg up on Canada. Uh, and that I, I have to tell you, Ethan, I was kind of surprised uh, that that's the case. So is is Quasi's general observation that the opportunity for the Americas to you know north america to to get its act together and begin to invest and compete with with the asia pacific the window is not going to be open that long well i'll speak maybe just to the us example because it's the one i probably know best and also because it's obviously an enormous demand market but the way the inflation reduction act is written is that the tax credits that are available for consumers for electric vehicles are contingent really on two things where the vehicle itself is assembled and where the components for the battery that goes into the vehicle come from. Um, so it creates some very strong um, incentives for that to get localized to either the U.S. or to a free trade agreement country. Uh, it's pretty explicit about that. And basically half the tax credit, half the $7,500 is only available if you meet certain requirements on that. So then the question is, is Canada going to be one of those free trade agreement countries that helps provide these materials? Is the U.S. itself going to do it? Is there another free trade agreement country that's going to be the supplier of this uh, of this equipment? Uh, and I would argue that it seems like there's a potential for a real race to be on among uh, all of those jurisdictions about who will be the ones to supply uh, these materials. Yeah, I would agree. And uh, the just to, to quote Kwesi again, uh, the uh, opportunity to get to, to do that uh is here and it's not going to be here very long so anyway we'll leave we'll leave that uh mm -hmm. i want to talk about your net zero scenarios uh you've got three of them and they all of them would not be reached with current levels of investment uh tell us about the scenarios and the amount of capital that will be required if we're going to meet even the most conservative scenario that you've uh, developed so really, we, we do think about three long-term scenarios under what we call our new energy outlook. Uh, three, I should say, three net zero scenarios. We also have what we call our uh, economic, uh, our, our regular ETS, economic transition scenario uh, outlook longer term. Uh, and, and really, the three that we've defined are green, what we call green, gray, and red. Um, and each really try to take into account um, a much greater use of hydrogen to get to the point where we truly do decarbonize the system. Because as, as I was saying earlier, we, we, we're of the view that the current technologies alone do not get you there. 
Uh, and so uh, under the so-called green scenario, we're talking about um, basically using uh, almost exclusively renewables to, to power electrolyzers to create hydrogen to generate the, uh, the hydrogen that's required to meet baseload um, energy demand. Under the gray scenario, which frankly doesn't quite get you to zero, but get there close, um, you're talking about using um, a CCS uh, scenario, using a lot of sequestered um, carbon uh, associated with using gas plants to generate um, hydrogen. And then under the red scenario, we're talking about using nuclear power. <laughs> uh, and the, uh, the, the differences uh, are, are substantial in the amount of money that we think you would require to, to do all three of these things. Um, in the case of the green scenario, we're talking about $150 trillion. In the gray scenario, about $96 trillion. And in the red scenario, about $136 trillion. Uh, these are all, to be clear, enormous numbers and based on some, some big assumptions about um, where the cost of these technologies are going to go uh, longer term. But we did try and map this out as sort of a mental exercise to think about how you might get to zero. Um, we'll do a good deal more of this, I should note, when we release our um, next edition of the New Energy Outlook, which will be at the end of November. Uh, we haven't actually updated this in a little while. Well, Ethan, thank you very much for this. I, you know, getting back to what Nat said, CapEx's destiny, you've mapped out in this report how much, where it's going, what it's being spent on, and who's doing it, and some of the implications for the Inflation Reduction Act. So we're going to be watching 2023 with uh, with uh, bated breath. So it'd be very interesting. Thank you very, very much for your insights. That, thanks so much for this opportunity and, uh, and really look forward to uh, your readers taking a look at this report. And by the way, I would, while I've got the mic, one other thing, we are putting out one other report this week that looks at future spending levels and the ratio of uh, clean versus dirty that will be required as we look out to 2050. Uh, and it looks at the different scenarios from the IEA and others. So keep an eye out for that as well. Will do. Thanks, Ethan. Thanks, Ethan.